friends, let's turn to our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. You know that we've been spending these past few weeks as we prepare for this big move and this big season in the life of the church to orient ourselves around what God is calling us to and who he's calling us to be. And we desire from Ephesians 3 to see more of his glory and more ministry that happens, more mission, more maturity. And today our passage is right after our theme verse, and we're talking about unity, unity in the body, that we desire God to do more than we can think with unity. And so I'm going to read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you, even for a moment, give us heavenly eyes to see the church as you see her. One body, one bride, united by one spirit, together under one name that is above all names, Jesus himself. Could we see it? Could we love it? Could we live it? In this great city, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, unity in the church is a touchy topic. This is something that affects all of us, and it affects us in big ways, and it affects us in small ways. In fact, irony of ironies, I'm writing a sermon on unity, and there was somebody who had left our church a few years ago and kind of left in a huff, and we agreed to get coffee together this week, and I kind of thought, hey, maybe we'll kind of get to the bottom of, of something of what happened And then somehow we spent the whole hour arguing about whether the Orthodox Church or the Protestant Church has closer access to the New Testament Church. So it's like rather than doing the the immediate work we needed to do, we started to do the big work that the church hasn't been able to figure out. And unity is a sore subject. It's sore in our history. And I would guess every single person in this room has a fractured, broken, sore, painful relationship, even with other believers filled by the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, it's kind of depressing to talk about unity, and it's depressing to talk about the one church, unless it is something that drives us once again to say, this is supernatural. This is not easy. We don't have any tips and tricks for how to be unified. This must be supernatural if we are going to lay down and die and be unified one to another. This is something that has to come from God. This has to be something that he bears in us. And so looking at this passage, we're going to describe the unity of the Spirit in the first three verses, and then we're going to locate that unity in the unity of God himself in verses four through six. So let's think about this unity that we have in the Spirit from the first three verses. Now, last week, we made the critical point from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We were talking about Christian maturity. We're talking about how we grow. And we admitted that all growth comes from God. Every element of our Christian growth, every spiritual fruit, every good thing that comes out of us has come from God in us, right? Jesus said, 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything at all. You can't bear a single spiritual fruit. It must be from God. Which means we don't change from the outside in. We don't take on new tips and new tricks and new habits and New Year's resolutions and say, if I do all these things, then maybe they'll work their way back into my heart and maybe my heart of stone will then become a heart of flesh. We don't change from the outside in. We only change from the inside out. We only change if God has done his gospel work in us to give us a soft heart of flesh in his presence. And that begins to change us from the inside out. Well, we saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That exact same sentiment is here in Ephesians chapter 4 because Paul says in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This has already happened if you are a believer. You have been called as God has saved you. Now walk in the way that you have been called. We can't do anything apart from him, but if he has brought us into this new environment in Christ, this new salvation calling, then God's saving call is the soil from which our unity will grow. And chapters one through three of Ephesians is all about that saving call. I wish we had time this morning to walk through those three great chapters. That's homework for this afternoon. But chapter one, before the foundations of the world, God has blessed us in Christ. Chapter two, we used to walk in the way of this world, speaking of walking, but God being rich in mercy delivered us from ourselves and set us on this new environment, this new path in him. So that chapter three, we can learn what is the height and depth and width and breadth that is the love of Christ. He has brought this saving call to us so that by the time we get to chapter four, Paul can simply say, now walk in it. You have it. It's yours. You are in this new environment. Jesus, your Savior, he is in front of you. He has done this for you. He's leading you. Now Now you follow him. You walk in his footsteps, and you begin to look and talk and sound like Jesus himself. We will become who we follow. Now, yesterday, our boys just finished their soccer season. Some of you are in the thick of that, but we got some elementary school boys that, that finished And uh, this happens once or twice every season, but there was a little tiff on the field, not yesterday, but a couple of weeks ago. And there was a a big girl out there playing, you know, elementary school. It's like, my boys are down here and the girls are up here. And there was a girl out there who was seriously a bully. She was pushing, she was name calling, she was in my kids' faces. It was all her fault, none of my kids' fault. And, And after the game, her dad runs up to our coach, gets in his face, and starts screaming at him in front of all the parents, saying, I raised my girl right. I taught her to stand up for herself. She's not going to back down to anyone, and she will tell it like it is, you know? And I, we're just kind of grabbing our coach and saying, thank you, we're out of here. Um, and it all made sense. She's acting like that on the field because her dad is acting like that at home. You become who you follow. You take on the mannerisms and the way of speaking and the vocabulary of the one who's out in front. And this family is changing for the worse. Who am I following? Who is out in front? Who do I emulate as I walk in the church? Who are my examples? What is my language? What do I seek? Paul says, make it Christ's. Make Christ the one we seek to walk 
worthily behind. And then he goes on to give four descriptions of what that walk looks like in verses one through three. And in each of them, you can see Jesus so clearly. And then you could see how if I'm following him, I will emulate these things as well. First, he says, walk with all humility and gentleness. And oh, think of the humility and gentleness of Christ. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is gentle and lowly with us, so tender with us, even in our sin. And as we emulate him, we begin to take on this humility ourselves that he has shown us and demonstrated for us. This is fascinating for Paul to write because in the Roman Empire, nobody celebrated humility. Like in some circles today, that's a good word, but in the Roman Empire, that was a bad word. You would use that as as a way to mock somebody or deride somebody by calling them humble. But Paul's saying, look, we're not taking our cues from the Roman Empire and we're not taking them from the American Empire. We are taking them from Christ. And when Christ makes himself lowly, all of a sudden, that's a treasured value in our community. So he walks with gentleness. Number two, he walks with patience, with endurance, with long-suffering. Is there anyone more enduring than Christ himself? And I appreciate the honesty here because unity is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Let's not confuse ourselves that this is a once and done or a couple times and done deal. It means enduring disappointment and sin and differences with the church body for the long haul. I'm patient in a body as Christ has been patient with me. Number three, he says, bearing with one another in love. It's one thing to tolerate each other. It's another thing to love each other. It's one thing to endure each other with gritted teeth and, and, and make it through the growth group and make it through Sunday morning and then get out of here as fast as I can. And it's a totally different thing by the Spirit's power to love and embrace each other in Christ. Number four, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is crucial because we are invited into an existing unity. We we didn't create this unity. We inherit this unity. We're given this unity. It's kind of like when you go to second shift at work and the shift manager says, hey, everything's clean. Everything's stocked. Everything's put away. Here are the keys. Don't mess it up. That's us receiving the church in the 21st century This is the singular bride of Christ. She is one in Christ. You get to participate in the oneness that she already is. So church, be eager, passionate, zealous to maintain what Christ has given us in the church. These are precious descriptions and we could just taste it as we read this chapter. We could just imagine what life could be like if everybody else would treat me this way and if I would begin to change and treat others this way. And all the more as we approach elections and we dwell in an environment that does not celebrate any of these things. Who wants a humble and meek politician? Who wants someone who's gentle and lowly in heart? We have different heroes in our culture But the church could shine all the more brightly if we will embody this and say no to that and shine forth the oneness of the church which is rooted 
in the oneness of God. We have unity in the spirit because Paul says there is a unity that exists in God, verses four through six. He rattles off the ones surrounding God. He's got seven of them, and you could put them in three groups. You've got the unity of God, and you've got the unity of God's people, and you have the unity of our response to God. Everything is one in God. You have the unity of God. We are one church because God is one, and our oneness has the flavor and pleasure and substance of the oneness of God himself. Paul says there is one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And in Trinitarian math, one plus one plus one equals one. And I think there's a reason that Paul is bringing up Trinity when he's trying to talk about unity because God knows something about unity in diversity by his very nature. The Son is not the Father and the Spirit is not the Son. And yet God is one. He is perfectly unified in the diversity of his persons. And then church, we are diverse. We come from different backgrounds and places and socioeconomic brackets and college football conferences. We, we're coming from very different places here. And as we come together as one, that is only a mirror and a reflection of a God who is one. So there's unity in God and there's unity in God's people. I think the hardest verse in the passage to believe in is not the Trinity, it's verse four, that we are one body. That the church is one body. I know the directory says that there are 8,000 churches in Colombia, but Ephesians says there's one. There's one in Colombia, there's one in South Carolina, there's one in the United States. There's one globally. There's one in all history. There's one in both testaments. There will be one for all time. There is one church. So the great irony of leaving a local church in a huff, you know the nasty way to leave where you burn relationships and you tell everybody what was on your mind the whole time and you're getting the heck out of there. That's like a person within the biology of Jesus lighting their left hand on fire and then going and hanging out with their right hand. It's all one. It's all one complete body under the headship of Christ. He says, I'm the head. And he says, church, we are the one body of Christ. Which means there's also a dark irony in saying, which all of us probably sometime in our life have said, you know what, I want Jesus, but I'm done with the church. Give me Jesus, but not the church. We've all said that pre-COVID, post-COVID, in COVID. We have said that. But within the biology and theology of Jesus, this is his head. This is his body. You either want Jesus or you don't want him. But there is no Jesus without the church. That's a radical statement. And that is all over the New Testament, all over the Apostle Paul, this is his body. If you want Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you celebrate Jesus, it will have to include all of Jesus, head, body, hands, and feet. Paul says, we are one body. 
And he says there's a unity of our response to God. There's only one hope, one faith, one baptism. There's one gate of our salvation as we witnessed this morning. It's repentance and faith through Jesus Christ himself. And in our baptism, we show forth this one means of salvation. So just pulling all these elements together, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit because God is one, his body is one, and our response to him is one. We inherit this. We are guests here of this one family, one body, one temple in God's name to extend this grace to each other. I love how the great preacher H.B. Charles says this when he says, you know, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of every born-again believer. He is here in us. Now, he's here in our community together, but he also dwells inside of each one of us. And H.B. says, if that's true, then the Holy Spirit in me is always going to love the Holy Spirit in you. He's one spirit. He can't but love himself within the Trinity. He's going to love the Holy Spirit in you. Conversely, the Holy Spirit in me is never going to hate the Holy Spirit in you. If I'm attentive to the Spirit, if I'm in the Spirit, if I'm walking with the Spirit, the Spirit in me, I mean, could rebuke and could speak truth and love, and could practice church discipline. But the Holy Spirit in me is never going to hate the Holy Spirit in you. He's not going to be rough with the Holy Spirit in you. He's not going to be impatient with the Holy Spirit in you. He's not going to insist on his own way with the Holy Spirit in you. He is one Spirit. If I have the Spirit, and you have the Spirit, there is an instant, eternal, divine bond between us. Our unity with each other, our love and kindness that God gives us, our peaceability, will not show forth to a world desperate to see it, us and how decent we are, if this diverse body can be one and treat each other as one, it will shine forth the majestic, glorious, peaceable, gracious, divine oneness of God and our city will love it and want it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have made us one. Now let us start acting as one. You have made us one body in the spirit. Now let us walk in step with the spirit in us that loves the spirit in each other. Let us follow in Jesus' footsteps to be kind and patient and long-suffering with one another so that you will knit us together in this precious body of Christ as a witness to you together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.